Welcome to Inside Maine. This is Angus King. We talk about issues involving Maine and the country. And uh, today we're going to be talking about one of the most important issues on an ongoing basis that face, uh, faces this country, and that is national security. We're going to talk about the National Defense Authorization Act, better known as the NDAA. And with me is Senator Mike Rounds, one of my best friends in the Senate, a Republican senator from South Dakota, member of the Armed Services Committee. And Mike and I have worked particularly closely together over the last couple of years on cyber issues. Uh, Mike, uh, welcome to Inside Maine. It's uh, delighted to have you with us and hope I can welcome you to Maine in person someday. Hey, Angus, first of all, thank you. And uh, I couldn't agree more that this is one of the most important issues that we talk about every single year. And it has been a pleasure working with you. And just for the folks out there in, in, in Maine, you have to understand that Angus is not only a former governor that understands he needs to get, get uh, things done, but he does it in a very bipartisan way. And uh, we've worked together now on cyber issues and we've worked together on other national defense issues that we think are important to the country. And uh, it, this happens a lot more in the Senate than a lot of people realize. And sometimes we always focus on the things where we're divided rather than on those things that bring us together. And the NDAA is one of those items that brings us together every single year. And that's probably one of the more important things about the NDAA is, is it really does bring our country together. Well, and, and, and I think that you, you make a really good point because when I go home, all people hear about on the news is the conflict. You know, Democrats deadlock, Democrats and Republicans fighting, nothing gets done. Uh, the national defense bill is one of the most important bills that we do. It's been passed on a bipartisan basis every year for I think over 60 years. And uh, I think it came out of the committee this year, 26 to three or something like that. Mike, let me start off with, with a basic question that I get and, and people at home say, why do we have to spend so much money on defense? Why do we spend more than other countries? And, and uh, couldn't we use that money somewhere else? You know, <laughs> it's a really good way to start out. Um, let, me, let me try to explain it as simply as I can. Uh, the Constitution requires that we provide for the national defense. That's one of the most important things that we do. But it's based not so much on what we want, but what we need. Right now, we are in a what we call a great power conflict. We have people that are not necessarily our friends that see us as a threat, and they see us in many cases as being an opportunity for them to expand. Um, Russia, clearly, right now, as we talk about it, is threatening their neighbor Ukraine, even after signing agreements saying that they respect Ukraine's sovereignty. We know that they're amassing hundreds of thousands of individuals on the border, along with heavy equipment, and they're prepared to make cyber attacks right now that we'll talk about probably. China uh, is not our friend at this time. We wish they were. But nonetheless, they have been extremely aggressive in expanding their regional and their international uh, approach. Uh, they believe that they should be the center of the world and that everyone should follow the guidelines as based on Chinese tradition, not necessarily the Western traditions that have established and proven to be a way to try to maintain peace and tranquility and grow the, the economy across the entire world for the last, well, since World War II. And well, now in the middle of it, we have folks that really are out to uh, challenge us and to try to in impose their will we have to be in a position to respond to that. And if we're not, 
they were going to find it extremely expensive as we proved to them that we really are capable of fighting back. I'd rather have them look at us and say, eh, let's not mess with them. They are big enough. They are strong enough. Maybe now is not the right time to attack the United States or their allies. Well, that, that's the key point. I mean, our whole defense strategy is based on one word, deterrence. That the best attack, the best war is the one that doesn't happen. And the most likely way to prevent that is for potential adversaries to uh, fear you, to, to fear the, 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 the results of, of some kind of incursion or attack. And that, you know, the, the, the best example is the lead up to World War II where Hitler sort of was taking bites out of Europe and he was appeased and they thought, well, if we just let him have Czechoslovakia, that'll be okay. The Sudetenland, there are a lot of German speakers there. And, uh, but by the time it was too late, we were in World War II, 55 million people died. And it most likely could have been prevented by a greater level of resistance. And frankly, pr preparedness uh, among the European countries and the, and the British uh, in, the, in the late 30s. And so deterrence is absolutely a, a key concept. And, and a lot of people, you know, they don't really like to hear that. They say, well, you know, why are you building those, those destroyers or those bombers? Well, we're building them because we hope to never have to use them. Absolutely correct. And, 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 and it's even more than that now because our adversaries have become very technologically advanced and they recognize that when we talk about air, land, and sea, we have very strong forces. We have nuclear forces that are old, and we are currently, matter of fact, part of the NDAA is upgrading our nuclear command and control and upgrading the actual nuclear uh, capabilities of our country right now. But we've got two more of, uh, of these domains that now we also have to include when we talk about defense, and that is space and cyberspace. And if you don't control and if you are not able to protect the assets that you have in space and in the cyber world, our computer systems, our networking and so forth, then our young people are at risk and they will die. And that's expensive. Well, but nonetheless, that's where we've got to be focusing. Well, you and I know from the, our work on the committee and just observing events that uh, what, if, if there is a conflict, it will start with a, with a devastating cyber attack. Correct. And that's what we've worked so hard. I worked on the commission. You worked with, with us uh, over the past year, couple of years, to strengthen the, the federal response to cyber because that's that's where, in fact, right at this as we're speaking, uh, we've heard of Russian attacks on the uh, in uh, cyber attacks on Ukraine, uh, on their uh, basic networks, and we know that in 2015 they took down part of their electric grid just as a kind of. Uh, wake-up call. And, and so that's that's part of it. The other part, Mike, that, you know, surprised me when I really dug into the numbers. And it surprises people when I tell them, uh, particularly my friends on the left, the defense budget as a percentage of GDP, which is a reasonable way to, to compare yeah, apples to apples, is about a third of what it was 30 or 40 years ago. It was in, it was around eight or nine percent uh, in the in the 80s, it's now 3.3 percent, uh, and it's it's gone down steadily over the past uh, five or six, eight, ten years. And as a percentage of the federal budget, it's also gone down. It's a lot of money in absolute dollars. There's no question. And people say, well, why do we have to have 
you know, twice, 10, five times as much as other countries combined. Well, we're the only ones that are holding the line worldwide uh, that has to contend, as you say, with, with Russia, with China. And uh, unfortunately, China is building warships, uh, space capability, nuclear capability, just, just uh, absolutely nonstop. There's another part of it as well. We, we don't have a draft anymore. And without a draft, we pay our volunteer army. Now, this year, we're going to give them about a 2.7% raise. Not as big as what the inflation rate is, but nonetheless, we pick that up. We also pay for their health care. We pick up uh, a retirement plan for them. But Angus, there's something else in the middle of this discussion that we sometimes forget about. And that is, is we don't plan on fighting a war on our soil. We plan on taking the fight to the enemy. And we do that uh, away from us. And that means that we have to extend out and that we have to have capabilities and competencies throughout the world. That's expensive. But when the American people ask the question of why do we do it, it's because nobody wants to shed blood on our soil. We don't wanna have a war in America. If we're gonna take it to somebody, we're gonna take it to the enemy. We're gonna take it to the adversary. But that means pre-planning, pre-positioning. Um, it means uh, agreeing and working with some great allies in terms of having bases overseas and, and, and in maintaining our armed forces at a high level of readiness around the world. Uh, if we were just simply going to put up a defense around the United States and say, come and get us, and then we would have bloodshed here like we had during the Civil War, I think, I, I think that would be a losing proposition, and I think the American people would question our sanity. So for us, it's fight it as an away game, put it outside, but it does cost us more money. Well, and, and that leads me to, you know, one of the major contributions to our defense posture that comes from the state of Maine are Aegis destroyers, which are built at Bath Ironworks. And I was once in one of our intelligence agencies, and there was this whole wall of, of TV screens with a giant map of the world. And it had all of our assets on, on that map of, you know, what, what, what do we have defending ourselves everywhere in the world? And you saw Aegis destroyers everywhere, in the South China Sea, in the Mediterranean, uh, in, in the North Atlantic. Uh, and, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a sort of a luxury for me to be able to advocate for a home state industry with, with absolutely total commitment in terms of national security. In other words, I don't feel that I'm just advocating for destroyers because they're made in Bath. I'm advocating for them because they're an essential part of our our defense structure. The same thing in South Dakota. You have uh, you have uh, the bomber the, the bombers there. They're an essential part of our nuclear deterrent. Yes, and, and you know, Angus, let me talk on both of them for just a second. It, it is absolutely correct that our Navy is a, a line of defense, and it is respected, and it is our way of, in many cases, of, of, uh, projecting power. Uh, and stopping a regional conflict from getting out of hand and becoming something that could impact our homeland. But every single task force that goes out has a carrier, in it, a nuclear-powered carrier, but it also has submarines that protect it, uh, attack submarines. It also has the, the, the Aegis, but it also carries other uh, missile defense and air defense systems to protect that carrier, where we keep our F-A-18s or our F-35s that are designed to project power. Uh, it's a huge part of our national defense. We want diplomacy, 
but diplomacy without the backup of national defense really is worthless. And uh, for me in South Dakota, yeah, we're really proud of the B-21. The B-21 is going to be the new stealth bomber. We haven't even we haven't even displayed the real bomber to the public yet. It's still classified, but we'll have the first two squadrons, a training squadron and the first operational squadron at Ellsworth Air Force Base. And uh, we're very proud of that. We're in the middle right now of actually doing the construction to be able to house it and protect it. And um, we, we look forward to being a part of that national defense strategy for years to come. Well, let, let me go back to the process whereby we get the defense bill through. And to me, it's always the, my it's my favorite part of the legislative process while I'm here, because we actually sit around a table for 10 or 12 hours, sometimes over two days, and actually debate, argue, change each other's minds. And I've sort of kept track. I've been on the Armed Services Committee for nine years. And I think in that whole time, we've probably dealt with I don't know, a uh, uh, 1,000 or 1,500 sure. amendments, only a handful were decided by an, a party line vote. Yeah. Maybe 10 in 10 years. Very rarely is there a party line vote. And that's the way the process is supposed to work. And as I say, the bill came out this year, I think 23 to three. Last year it was 25 to one. Uh, and we, we, we hashed things out and we get to the point where we reach agreement. And, and our friends in our home states, they don't think we ever do that. And, and I just think, I don't wanna, I don't wanna sound like I'm, I'm, I'm puffing here, but uh, people should know that this is a place where the, where the system actually works. That's right, and, and you know, and, and it's, it's, a lot of it is leadership. Um, you take a look at Jack Reed, who's the chairman, um, you know, out of Rhode Island, a great guy, a Democrat, who clearly cares about our country. Jim Inhofe from Oklahoma, uh, a veteran and and clearly, you know, a, a strong, strong advocate for national defense. Now, those two guys get together and they work things out. Um, they make sure that things run. We all get a chance to say what we're thinking. We all get a chance to participate. And, you know, we're staff driven. I mean, let's be honest. We've, our teams have got to work together and communicate back and forth when it comes to the amendments and so forth. But in that committee, in a lot of cases, it amazes me that you can't tell the Republicans from the Democrats on a lot of the issues. And that's a good sign for our country. So, yeah, and, and Angus, I agree with you. That's the funnest part of, uh, of the entire Senate experience as far as I'm concerned. And um, I'm glad you're on it because you bring a little bit of that good old governor common sense, which I think <laughs> I'll need. Well, I should have mentioned at the beginning that you're a former governor yourself. Uh, Lamar Alexander used to say that a former governor is worth half a dozen ordinary senators, but I'd never say that to anybody but you. Uh. <laughs> well, Mitch McConnell still says that if you ask one of us former governors which we'd rather be, a, a governor or a United States senator, if they tell you it's a United States senator, they'll lie to you about other things as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there are, it's interesting, there are about a dozen of us in the, in the Senate yeah. and uh, <laughs> on both parties, and, and myself as an independent, and I, I detect a greater sense of bipartisanship among that group, don't you? I do, uh, because the, number one, they want to get results, and right. they're not afraid to reach across the aisle and say, time out, this shouldn't be partisan in nature, let's get something done on it. And you know, and in many cases, we've had these experiences where we're, where we're comfortable talking to one another, and we know that we're kind of built from the same cloth in terms of trying to find a path forward, rather than simply talking about it and I think we all get nervous because back when we were governors, we were expected to perform and execute. 
And in the United States Senate, I think some of our colleagues think it's more about the speech you give rather than the results you get from the speech. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I don't, I, I'm not touching that line, but uh, <laughs> in, in, in any case, well, the, the, we're going to keep working on the defense bill. And, and as you say, this year's bill had some very important provisions in it, had some very important cyber provisions in it that you and I worked together on. Uh, the, the raise for the troops, as you say, uh, paid family leave for, for military people is, is in the bill. Uh, and so that's, the, and there was a lot of give and take. I mean, you know, it wasn't all one side or the other. Uh, as you say, Jack Reed is a Democrat. He's the chair. Uh, but he and Jim Inhofe did everything absolutely together. And going back, I mean, when I first uh, got on the committee, there was Carl Levin and then uh, John McCain. I mean, one of the treasures of my life is working uh, with those two guys and, and having McCain insult me during hearings. You, you know you'd arrive <laughs> when McCain, you know, called you a geezer or something, which he used to call me. Yeah, I, I just remember the two of us ganged up on him one time and won a little deal for a Made in America uh, shoes and he didn't appreciate that very oh, much. Oh, he didn't. He, <laughs> I, I did. I lobbied the night before and talked to you and a bunch of others, and we got that vote. And he was, he was. Uh, I, this is a family program, so I won't use the term, but but yeah. he was, he was mighty angry. And uh, but but the way McCain was, it, it you know it immediately passed, and you moved on, uh, moved on to other things. But I think you're right. Leadership has had had a lot to do with it. The way it's the way the committee's uh, been handled, and now we're going to work on next year's bill. That's right, and, and it's critical that we continue to do it. This year's bill was over 900 pages, and that doesn't, doesn't include the classified sections, but what this does is gives direction to the Pentagon uh, on, on the direction they need to go, a refocus on great power competition, a refocus once again on how critical it is that the cybersecurity of this country has to go outside of the silos that are currently created within the different offices. And a fact that we want it on a coordinated basis. Uh, the, cyber, the cyber solarium that you work so well on, and in fact you chaired, uh, uh, we've got a number of items in there that have to be incorporated yet, but we've got to make it seamless so that our the protection of the assets that you find in internet connectivity, the things that people try to steal, we've got to be able to protect it. And then we've also got to be able to reach out and touch the folks that are constantly trying to get in and damage our critical infrastructure in terms of our internet connections, which if they go down, it's our guys on the front line that really get hurt by it. it, it it's, it, and you're talking regional things, it's like when our guys could go in and stop the cell phones from setting off the IEDs in Iraq and Afghanistan. A lot of that was cyber that was developed in order to do that. Those are the types of things that have got to continue to be worked on. Well, we, we got plenty of work to do there. And as you say, we're gonna continue that. And the key is in cyber is, cooperation and coordination and communication between the private sector and the public sector, because this is a new kind of conflict. The conflict isn't going to be between armies and armies and navies and navies. At, the, at least at the outset, it's going to be uh, their cyber hackers against our transportation system or our electric grid. I talked to a utility executive recently who told me that he's attacked right now his systems three million times a day. I mean, that gives you a flavor of how serious this is. You and I are out of time. We could spend the whole, we could spend all day talking about uh, cyber, but uh, Mike, I just want to tell you what a pleasure it is to work with you. And uh, we're going to, we're going to keep it up and I'm looking forward to working on the bill uh, this year. And uh, we're going to do everything we can to keep this country safe. 
Well, look, Angus, once again, you're, you're a great member of the United States Senate. You've been really, in a way, a mentor to me coming in after you came in. But uh, uh, the one thing I can say that I'm really certain about, I can't see Angus right now. I know we're doing this by podcast, but if he's got a tie on, uh, I'd, I'd be willing to bet there's a lobster on his tie. <laughs> oh, I don't know why you would think that. I, I, it's <laughs> amazing you should think that. Uh, I also have a mask. In fact, here's a funny story. I lost my, I had a lobster mask and I lost it. I dropped it on the street outside the Capitol and damn if somebody didn't find it. And they said, this has got to be yours <laughs> and gave it back to me the other day. One of one of our colleagues, Mike Rounds, thank you so much for your time and uh, look forward to continuing to work with you. Good to work with you as well, Angus. Stay with us on Inside Maine. We're going to talk about the defense bill and uh, some of the actual direct benefits to the state of Maine and some of the important research that's being done here based upon uh, the provisions of that bill. Thanks again. We'll be right back on Inside Maine. Welcome back to Inside Maine. This is Angus King. We're talking this week about the National Defense Authorization Bill, the big national defense bill that passes every year. And a few minutes ago, we were talking to Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota, who's a member along with me of the Armed Services Committee, uh, about the national and uh, national security and international implications and policies in the bill. And I want to take it a little bit closer to home right now and uh, talk to Habib Dagar, who's the, uh, who's the well, I, I don't know quite what to call him. He's, he's the uh, inventor-in-chief up at Orono at the University of Maine. He's in charge of the Advanced Composites Lab, but uh, does a lot more work up there. Uh, the first thing I, I ought to mention, Habib, is that there are people listening right now who are saying they spend too much money on defense why are we spending all this money? Give me your thoughts from your perspective about how important some of these expenditures are. Yes, thank you, Senator King, and, and uh, thank you for having me with you today. Um, yeah, the, uh, the, the research that the Defense Department does really cuts, cuts across uh, not only the defense uh, needs, but also civilian needs. So much of the research that we do uh, and the inventions that we do not only end up helping the Defense Department, but help, ends up helping the civilian world. We call them dual-use technologies, so they use both in defense. Um, and to give you an example, uh, one of the technologies that was developed in, in our laboratory a number of years ago is called the bridge in a backpack. It's, a, it's an inflatable bridge technology that you fill with concrete on site. You can build the bridge on site. It was developed for, for, for the U.S. Army uh, Native Soldier Center, but now we have a private company in Maine that spun off our lab that's taking these same designs and fabricating bridges in Maine, ship them across the country and the world. So uh, without the defense funding, we wouldn't have this new company. So the defense funding allows us to develop inventions that are not only good for the defense department, but good for all the rest of us as well. Well, talk to me about some of the other work that you're doing. You mentioned the, the, the bridge technology, which is really kind of amazing that you can, you can do a bridge faster, easier, cheaper, less corrosion. Uh, but also the work you're doing with 3D printing and what they call advanced manufacturing. Yeah, yes, indeed. So we're working with the with the Defense Department on 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 the printing boats and and and, and other things 
as well. And, and uh, just a couple of years ago, we printed a 25-foot vessel called the Three Dirigo. And, uh, and this is a, this is a 5,000 pound. Now, now let, me, let, me, let, me, let me stop you right there, Habib, because I think people are listening saying, what does he mean we printed a boat? Give, give me, you know, what, what are, I've seen the boat. I've been in it. It actually floats. But what are we talking about printing a boat? Yeah, so um, the 3D printer we use, many of us have used 3D printers that sit on our desk. And what they do is they melt the polymer and, and they deposit that layer by layer uh, on your desk or on, 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 in the printer to build up uh, whatever you want to print. And uh, in our case, it's not very much different, except our printer is very big. Uh, the print volume, it's 60 feet long, 22 feet wide, and 10 feet high. It's the largest, biggest in the world. And, and what we do is, is we, um, we take a polymer and mix it with bio-based resins and, 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 uh, and fibers, such as wood fibers, and print with that. And we deposit the material layer by layer and build up a structure. So uh, another way to look at that is if uh, you went to Home Depot or, or Lowe's and bought yourself a, heat, a, a glue gun, uh, and you put the glue gun down against the floor and, and made a circle with that, and then made another circle on top of it a bit, a bit smaller, and another circle on top of it a bit, a bit smaller, eventually you'd have a cone. And you just 3D printed a cone, essentially. And our printer, instead of using your arm to move the 3D, the, uh, the, the glue gun, uh, our printer uses robots to move a, a printing head uh, very much like you move, your, you move your arm in this case. Well, one of the things that I'm most excited about about this technology is the possibility of using uh, a polymer or a, a substance, the, the, the goop, I don't know what to call it, made from wood fibers. So this would be an entirely new product out of the main forest uh, that could be turned into this uh, this resin that would be used to print an object, whether it might be a part or a, or a, 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 a wall. Uh, they're even now in some parts of the country working on printing a 3D house. So uh, tell me about where we are on using the wood-based product because that would be a big deal for the main forest products industry. That's exactly right, Senator King. So what we were, we've been working, as we said, we printed a boat that's 25 feet long and that was, 5,000 pounds and, and, and did that actually in a little over a weekend uh, in the laboratory to prove the concept. But we start, we're, we're looking at other, other things we could, we could do. Uh, uh, one of the applications actually is in boat building, printing tools for, for boat molds out of these wood-based materials. So think about taking wood uh, that's, uh, that's um, uh, waste from, from sawmills and, and other mills uh, and, and then grinding it up into, into very fine powder uh, and that's called microcellulose. And you take that and grind it up about a thousand times smaller as well. That's called nanocellulose. The nanocellulose particles have properties similar to metals. And the, the, so by putting nanocellulose and microcellulose together of wood, essentially, in a polymer, in a biopolymer, and printing with it, we can print very strong structures. Uh, and one of the things we're trying to print is homes. Now, other things we're trying to print is boats. Actually, we have a, a, a meeting just uh, a little over a week ago with the, the major boat builders in the state. We've agreed to work together and print a bio-based boat, the very first one ever printed, uh, and take it on a, on a show across the country using our printer uh, and using uh, wood-based wood materials from Maine. And that would be a, a, a boat that would be marketed by, by the boat building industry throughout the state of Maine. Um, so that's an example of where um, this 3D printer was actually um, uh, funded through Department of Defense funding, but we're using it to build both for the for civilians and we, we, and the other opportunity, as you said, is is housing um, uh, that we're working on. And 
and um, we have a big housing crisis. As you know, if you try to buy a house, it costs a heck of a lot more than it did a year or two, two years ago. And if you try to build one, uh, good luck to try to find builders to build it at a reasonable cost and a reasonable time. So can we print homes is the question we're asking ourselves. And, and um, in a, but can we print it using these wood-based materials is the problems we're trying to solve. And our goal is, by, by before the end of this year, um, to invite you to the lab, Sandra King, and, and, uh, and, and show you uh, a low-income home printed using this printer. Well, I, 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 I'll be there. Don't worry. Uh, you know how much I love coming up to the lab. But the, the, uh, I think the important point, getting back to the defense budget and the defense bill, is that this is research that was originally done for the military uh, to help them uh, make uh, objects and products that they need out in the field in a hurry where they can't get a supply chain. Uh, but the application is for is going to be very beneficial to the to the public in general, whether it's homes or or boats or products or whatever is done, and plus the added benefit of using using wood as the base material, which adds, you know, now we no longer it's it's no longer just paper paper plates, timber uh, tr trusses and those kinds of things, but it's also going to be uh, used for this this printing process. Speaking of, of trusses, uh, tell us about cross-laminated timber and some of the work that you've done for the military in uh, safer structures for them. Exactly. Uh, so cross-laminated timber actually uh, is, is taking essentially two by sixes uh, and two by eights uh, sawn lumber and then gluing it together at 90 degree angles and layer by layer by layer. You could have three or four or five layers of these uh, two, two by sixes and two by eights uh, to form these large panels that could be 60 feet long or 80 feet long and 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 then eight or nine feet wide. Uh, these these panels then becomes the walls uh, and the floors and the roofs of buildings. Uh, and um, you can actually design a, a you know a ten story building and and make these panels if you wish and have them drilled to drill the holes so you can assemble them like a Lego kit and ship them to a site to fabricate them. Uh, and um, these, these buildings, um, uh, has, this technology started in Europe uh, uh, and, and it's started coming into the US on the West Coast. But what we've done here is we've done some testing on that using Maine wood species. And just a, just a few months ago, we've qualified Maine wood species, spruce, pine and fir, to be used in this in this marketplace for the first time, so our, our wood is now qualified for building codes not only in Maine but nationally uh, using using these materials. Uh, so there's a real opportunity here for Maine to be an exporter of of, of housing components and, and building components using this new technology. So. Well, the one thing you didn't mention is that these beams can be made as strong as steel. They're a lot more uh, friendly to the environment because they're sequestering carbon. Uh, and they can uh, they'll they'll last just as long. I mean, it's a it's a uh, it's it's a huge opportunity. Uh, now, what we need is a factory in Maine that uh, does cross laminated timber, and I suspect that's just a matter of time. That's exactly right. It's in a, it's a chicken and egg. You got to build a market for it, right? And then once there's enough of a market, then people come to Maine, and and the market is starting to grow. And um, and uh, we we are planning to build a factory of the future at the University of Maine and uh, using these materials, um, uh, hopefully uh, hopefully up and running by 2024, it'll be a 90,000 square foot facility to showcase these materials here in Maine. So. 
Well, what's what's the factory of the future? What does that mean? So the factory of the future, uh, basically, it, it's a, think about not just one 3D printer, but a gang of 3D printers working together uh, to, to print a home, uh, not, not just the home, the walls and the roofs of the home, but think about printing the conduits that you can, you can, you can snake uh, electric lines through uh, and, and, and the piping that you would run water through and so on and so forth all at once. So, so these different, these printers uh, are worked, working together to do that. Um, but, but think about this fact of the future, not only printing um, uh, housing, but also printing boats. Think about what it takes to print a boat. Huh? You've got, you need uh, electricals, you need mechanical systems, you, you need the structure itself of the, of the boat and so forth. What if you can actually do that all at once? And that's what the fact of future is going to allow us to do, is be able to use digital manufacturing technologies uh, uh, to, to be able to print next generation structures. Imagine a day where you want a, a 1,200 square foot home and you email the drawing to the factory, factory of the future and and uh, what if it gets uh, delivered to you the week after just like amazon delivers products back to you in the future uh, by having factories of the future like that you use wood-based resources uh, uh, we we can we we there, it's not science fiction to be able to do that anymore and this research facility at the university of maine the factory of the future is where we're going to develop these new technologies that would eventually be taken to to the private sector well how how important is is defense bill funding to to the overall work that you're doing at the lab? It's very critical. If you look at nationally, the, the majority of R&D, the, the, the larger funder of R&D in science and engineering and technology is the Defense Department. So the Defense Department invests more in, in research and development than the National Science Foundation, for example, and others. So it's very critical uh, to have that research. And it is what we call basic research, is to advance the science and engineering principles. And once you advance the science, you can use that in the civilian world and as well as in the military world. So that's why we call them dual-use technologies. So it's a, and and uh, so there's a lot of innovation that comes out of these uh, these research funds. And and um, and then our researchers at the University of Maine in our center, uh, we we have 260 people who work in the lab, 110 full-time people, and the rest are students. They're paid on these research projects that are developing these new engineering and science uh, and new technologies. So there's jobs created in our lab because of the science that we're developing under these programs. But, but what's really exciting is once the science is developed, it could be used all over society. Uh, and and, and that's, that's the exciting part uh, of, of these projects. So. Well, and, and, and the other part that we've touched on is that you're developing new uses for uh, one of our basic main products, which is which is wood, uh, that will produce additional jobs out in the in in Maine, whether it's a factory making uh, cross laminated timber, or uh, the the truckers and the and the, uh, the 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 woodcutters that are bringing the bringing the wood in. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a sort of a opportunity to not reinvent but add on to. Uh, the important role that the forests play. I think a lot of people don't realize that that a, about 15, it, between 15 and 20 percent of the GDP of Maine comes out of the woods. Uh, it's a big part of our economy. And to the extent, and you've heard me say this before, I want you guys to, you know, find 100 new ways to use wood. And uh, that's exactly what you're doing. Exactly, and, and, and it's it, what's more important is you know the pulp and paper industry. We we've lost five five pulp and paper plants in a short time in the state of Maine, so that wood 
that otherwise would have gone to the pulp and paper plants right now. We're looking for ways to use that. And housing is a big opportunity for this. To give you a sense, a, a 600 square foot low income home uh, would weigh about 50,000 pounds when it's printed. That's about 25, half of that, 25,000 pounds is wood. And so think about that's just one house with 25,000 pounds of wood. And so there's a lot of wood we could use uh, when you look at housing in Maine and across the country as well. So, And how many, how many students do you have up there that are engaged in these in these different projects? Yeah, since we got our lab got started 25 years ago, we, we financially sponsored uh, 2,600 students uh, from 35 different academic departments on campus. These are students who get paid to work in the lab so they could like paid interns, if you wish. They work on these exciting uh, projects and they some of them develop patents and, and, and uh, some of them uh, go on to run their own companies. So it's been, it's been an exciting opportunity for, for over 25 years now. Well, I remember when the lab started, there was some young guy who was governor then, and he's had a piece of your cross-laminated timber sitting on his desk for, I think, pretty close to eight years. You remember seeing that whenever you were in Augusta. That's exactly right, Governor. I remember <laughs> the day that I was, I was young and foolish and walked into your office right before you're going to pass the supplemental budget and said, Governor, we need $250,000 to match a $2 million federal grant so we can build this lab. And you said, what, what are you going to do with the slab, young man? And I said, you remember, Governor, uh, you, you've been saying no fish should leave Maine with its head on, meaning we need, need, need to process our own materials in Maine and add value to them in Maine. And I said, Governor, no, no log should leave Maine with its bark on so we can, we can process it <laughs> here in Maine. And, and uh, I, I never forget that, that day, Governor, and that, uh, at the time you were Governor, of course, and, and we continue the journey. <laughs> Well, it's 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 incredible what you've achieved up there. And if uh, if our, any of any of our listeners are in the in the Orono area, the uh, the Composites Lab is one of the most interesting places. Uh, with the they've got a, a wave pool where they can simulate uh, conditions in the ocean with wind and waves, and uh, done a lot of work on uh, offshore wind and uh, technology of of testing wind blades, and and in addition to the uh, to the 3D printing and additive manufacturing, uh, Habib, do you do you are there new opportunities you guys are working on? Um, you you put your finger on it. There's so many opportunities in the additive manufacturing space or 3D printing space, and and the next big thing to to next year to look to look for is is um is housing opportunities and 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 uh, particularly low income housing. Uh, so our goal is to print a 600 square foot low income home that meets all of the uh, requirements. Uh, that the state Maine State Housing Authority has, we're working very closely with them, and and have them displayed here by mid-year, so before the summer, Governor or, and and Senator. <laughs> we look forward to having you there. That, I really look forward to that. I've often uh, thought that there there've got to be more efficient ways to to build houses, and uh, it sounds like you're 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 onto something. And uh, will where where's the demo going to be up in that area? Right behind our lab, actually, just a few hundred feet from our lab, but we're uh, we're going to have it right over there and 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 test it through the main winter after we get it built and and uh, and instrument it very carefully. And and the beauty of these three D printed homes that we're looking at is, uh, you've heard about three D printing. Other people are three D printing homes using concrete right now, but they only print the walls, and they come back and stick build everything else. We're printing the whole thing out of wood based materials and and bio based materials, so we can easily ship them. And they're 100% recyclable. So uh, when our grandchildren uh, want to uh, are done with a home 100 years from now, 200 years from now, we can grind the whole thing up and put it back in the printer and print something else with it. And and that's that's the beauty of of, of these technologies that are being developed. 
Well, I look forward to seeing him firsthand. Habib, thank you for everything that you're doing up there. And, and uh, uh, we're going to continue to work on the, on the research part of the defense bill. I think it's, it's, most people don't realize that that's a, that's a big part of, of, uh, of the research that gets done that ends up benefiting all of us, uh, uh, not just uh, on the military side. So uh, thanks again for the work that you're doing. And uh, I look forward to seeing you uh, the next time I'm up in the neighborhood. Thank you, Senator King. Great to be with you. And thank you for the leadership you provide in Washington. That's all the time we have today for Inside Maine. I want to thank uh, Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota and Habib Dagar of uh, the University of Maine for talking with us about the National Defense Authorization Act, its impact nationally, internationally, and right here in Maine. Thanks for being with us. See you next time on Inside Maine.